Before we get underway with looking at the Word of God this morning, uh, we do have some good news to share with you that we never had opportunity to share with you back in the month of March. But on February the 26th, Daniel and Brooke Reimer were blessed with twins. Malachi James coming into the world at four pounds, six ounces, and 17 and a half inches long, and his beautiful sister, Emery Joy, coming into the world at four pounds and 14 ounces and 17 and a half inches long. I keep telling myself this so that it will sink in, but Daniel and Brooke have been married less than a year and they already have two children. That's an amazing providence and a handful of responsibility. We rejoice with them over these precious gifts of life, these precious gifts of eternal souls that God has entrusted to them. And we pray for God's richest blessing on Daniel and Brooke as they seek to bring up their children in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. For the message today, I want to talk to you on the subject of the meaning of Christ's resurrection. The meaning of Christ's resurrection. During these unusual days in which we are living right now, people are finding themselves asking many deep questions about life and about death, about what's true, about God, and even about the state of their souls. And I want to submit to you that out of all of the important questions that one should be asking, the most important question that anyone can ask is the question, who is Jesus? There are other important questions that you yourself may be asking right now, but I'm convinced that if you answer this one question correctly, then you will find yourself able to answer many of the other questions that you are asking right now. When I was 17 years old, I had a lot of questions that plagued me that pretty much left me an agnostic for most of my junior and my senior year of high school. But after I graduated high school, somebody advised me to set all of my questions aside and to focus on this one question, who is Jesus? So I did that. And once I settled that question, it gave me the perspective that I needed to address the other questions that I had. In the years that followed, I was surprised to find all of the places in the New Testament where people were asking the same question too. After one occasion when Jesus pronounced a man's sins forgiven, some people said, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? After Jesus pronounced a woman's sins forgiven, people said, who is this who forgives even sins? After Jesus calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee, his disciples asked, Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who is this? Herod asked after hearing reports of Jesus preaching and his miracles. Who is this? The people asked when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey being hailed as the Messiah. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples after they had been with him for three years. Who is Jesus? That is the most important question of all. And Jesus spends a lot of time in the gospel accounts telling us the answer to that question. Jesus said to people, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said things like, I and the Father are one. He also said, I am the resurrection 
and the life. And he said things like, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. These are audacious claims that Jesus makes in the Bible about himself, which essentially leaves us with only two choices to make about him. Jesus is either who he says that he is, or he was crazy. Those are really the only two options. I'm not accustomed to quoting from Mick Jagger in my sermons, but Mick Jagger takes Jesus' claims to mean that he was crazy. Several years ago, Mick Jagger said these words, If Jesus had been indicted in a modern court, he would have been examined by doctors, found to be obsessed by a delusion, declared incompetent and incapable of pleading his case, and sent to an asylum. So that's how Mick Jagger interprets what Jesus' claims reveal about him. And his interpretation of the meaning of Jesus' claims might make sense were it not for one stubborn fact. And that fact is the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the third day after he was crucified. In my opinion, it is easy to figure out who Jesus is if we look at the fact that he was raised from the dead on the third day after he was crucified. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about what the resurrection of Christ means and what it should tell you about Jesus. Five things that the resurrection of Jesus tells us about him that we'll look at this morning. Number one, Christ's resurrection tells us that he is the ultimate truth teller. He is the ultimate truth teller. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard to figure out what's true nowadays. Even as I read news stories and articles about the coronavirus from various viewpoints, I'm often left wondering how much I should trust what I am reading, whether it's coming from the right or from the left. But I never have to wonder about that when I read the words of Jesus, because the resurrection of Christ from the dead shows me that Jesus is the ultimate truth teller who can be trusted. You see, as it turns out, Jesus did more than simply tell people that he was the resurrection and the life. He even did more than merely die and then rise again on the third day. Jesus promised that he would die, and he promised that he would be raised, and he even predicted the day that his resurrection would take place. And then he turned around and did exactly what he said that he would do. In the weeks prior to his crucifixion, while walking to Jerusalem, in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 21, we're told that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must be killed and be raised up on the third day. Again, in Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23, Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. After Jesus died, even his enemies said to Pilate in Matthew chapter 27, verse 63, listen to what they said. Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. And sure enough, after he was raised from the dead, there was an angel at the tomb who said to the women who had arrived at the tomb, He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. I love that. The angel doesn't just want these women to know that Jesus has 
been raised, but he wants him to know that he was raised just as he said that he would be. Here's my theory. If a person speaks a prediction and says, I'm going to get killed and I will rise from the dead on the third day after I am killed and their prediction comes perfectly true, then we should probably be interested in everything that person has to say on any topic, given that he is probably a speaker of truth in every area. And if that same person had said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that he was the only way to God, then we should probably take him at his word and follow him. I once heard S. Lewis Johnson tell a story from the days of the French Revolution. During the heady days of the French Revolution, there was a group of people who were trying to develop a secularized religion that featured a good moral code without the trappings of Christianity. But they were frustrated in their attempt because they could not come up with a secular religion that would attract any kind of significant following. And when they shared their frustration one day with Bishop Talleyrand, he said to them, surely this can't be so difficult as you suppose. It's easy to start a religion that attracts a huge following. And they said, well, what do you mean it's easy? How? And Bishop Talleyrand said, all you have to do is go around telling people that you're going to get killed and that you will rise from the dead three days later and then go and get yourself killed. And then three days after you are killed, rise again do that, and you will have no trouble attracting a following. And we get his point, right? That's exactly what Jesus did. And that's why an entire religion is founded upon him. That's why we call this year 2020 and mark our calendars by when Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago. And that's why you and I, ought to care about everything that Jesus says about anything. We should be asking, in light of his resurrection, what does Jesus say? What does he say about himself? What does he say about me? What does he say about salvation? What does he say about how to get to God? What does he say about death and about life on the other side of death? We should want to hear from Jesus on these issues, and we should value his words above anyone else's words. We should open our Bibles and read his words and treasure his voice above all others that are clamoring for our attention. There are many people nowadays who would love to earn your trust and provide answers to the questions that you are asking, but Jesus is the only one who predicted his death and resurrection and had those predictions come true. So he is the one who should have your ear above all others because he is the ultimate truth teller and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the third day after his crucifixion shows us that this is the case. There's yet a second thing that Jesus' resurrection tells us about him. And let's word it this way. Jesus has the right to intrude upon our life and direct our religion. Jesus has the right to intrude upon our life and direct our religion. There's an interesting incident that happens early in Christ's ministry that is recorded in John chapter 2. Jesus had come into Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to look around to see what was happening in the temple. And the text of John chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that as he looked around, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves 
and the money changers seated at their table. The religion of Judaism was centered at the temple in Jerusalem, which was the very heart of the Jewish faith. And people from around the world would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem in order to worship and uh, offer sacrifices to God there in the temple. And these pilgrims, a lot of them coming from other nations, did not want to bring an animal for sacrifice the whole distance that they were traveling. So many of them would come to Jerusalem without an animal and they would purchase an animal for sacrifice once they arrived in Jerusalem. In order for this to happen, they needed someone who could exchange the currency of their home country with the currency that was being used at the temple so that obviously then money changers were needed for that. The Jews needed to set up operations for this exchange and purchase to happen somewhere close to the temple in order to be convenient for pilgrims. And they decided to set up their operations for all of this inside the court of the Gentiles. They set things up in this way because it made sense to them. It was practical and they felt entitled to do so. After all, everyone has the right to set up their own religious practices however they like, right? Well, observe what Jesus thinks of their idea. Observe what he does in verse 15 of John chapter 2 and following. The text says, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Last week on Palm Sunday, we saw how Jesus does something similar to this near the beginning of the final week of his public ministry. And here we see an occasion where Jesus does something similar to this three years prior at the beginning of his public ministry. Only on this occasion, he comes into the temple with a whip and he goes after these people and he's making wreckage of what these religious people were doing in the temple. And in the process, he's acting like he's their religious authority who has the right to tell them what to do and what not to do regarding how they're practicing their religion. This is an amazing display of audacity on Jesus' part. Who does he think he is? Where does he think he gets such authority to behave in this way? What gives him the right to come crashing against their religious practices in the temple in this way? Well, that's exactly what the Jews are asking in their minds at this point. Observe what happens next in verse 18 of John 2. The text says, And the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? What they're asking is, What sign do you give us to show that you have the right to intrude upon our business and tell us how to practice our religion in the temple? Well, look at Jesus' answer in verse 19. And Jesus answered them, now here's the sign, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It turns out at the moment that no one understands what Jesus is talking about. As the story unfolds, John tells us that everyone thinks that Jesus is talking about the Jerusalem temple, but John tells us, in verse 22, that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. So essentially, when Jesus is asked by the Jews, by what authority he is cleansing the temple, 
And acting in this way, Jesus says, here's my sign of authority. Destroy my body, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And by that, you will know that I have the authority to clean house and to tell you how to practice your religion. This is a staggering claim by Jesus, and it's profoundly personal for you and for me. Christ's resurrection means that you don't have the right to set up your religion any way you please. It means that you have to let Jesus call the shots and allow him to come into your life and rearrange whatever is not to his liking. It means that Jesus has the right to tell you what to do and what to stop doing. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is his license to rule over you and to be your ultimate authority who directs your life and directs your religion. This is an important reminder for us today. Nowadays, being religious and being spiritual are very much in vogue. Jodie Foster, the Hollywood actor, is a self-professed atheist But she says she loves reading religious texts and she loves practicing Jewish and Christian religious rituals. I think I am a spiritual person, said Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine back in 1996. Madonna herself said, I am a very moral person back in 1996. Talk to just about anyone nowadays, and they will tell you that they are a spiritual person. Everyone is moral according to their own moral code. Everyone is religious in their own way according to their own liking and preferences with no Lord over them to intrude upon the choices that they make. But the resurrection of Jesus crashes into all of that. A few years ago, I was listening to a lecture by Timothy Keller in which he made this statement. He said, and I quote, the resurrection of Christ makes Christianity the most irritating religion in existence. Why? He continues and says, because the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Christ's teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. And he's right. The resurrection of Christ means that Jesus has the right to come crashing into your life and start calling the shots. His resurrection means that it's not good enough to simply be religious. You must be religious in a way that is regulated by him. His resurrection means that it's not enough to simply be spiritual. You must be spiritual in a way that is fully governed by him. The resurrection of Christ means that you can't just be moral according to your own moral code, but your morality must be governed by him. The resurrection of Jesus means that you must let him be the Lord of your religion the Lord of your spirituality, the Lord of your morality. But the resurrection of Christ means more than that. It means something else, which is actually really good news, which brings us to the third thing that the resurrection of Christ tells us about him. Number three, it tells us that Jesus is stronger than death. Jesus is stronger than than death. Death is the enemy of us all. It attacks everyone, and it always comes out the victor in every conflict. Death takes away our parents, our loved ones, our friends, and sometimes our children. Some of you have experienced the death of a precious loved one just over the course of this past year, and you're still feeling the sting of death's intrusion into your life. Last week, I read about a woman in Ohio whose mother 
and father and brother died from COVID-19 within the span of three days. Death is awful. It's not something to make peace with. The Bible teaches that death is an enemy that we need deliverance from. As one poet says, sometimes death comes with a craw and sometimes it comes with a pounce. But death always comes. With most of us, death comes with a craw, slowly killing us one cell at a time, taking from us the bloom of youth all the way to the incapacities of old age. And death is not content until it has taken our very last breath away from us. We can fight against death and we can delay death by maybe a few months or even years, but death always prevails and always wins in the end. Because of this fact, I am personally so not interested in believing in any savior who is less powerful than death. Anyone who wants to be a Messiah who is not more powerful than death needs to find another job because he's not qualified to be a real Messiah. What we all need is a savior who is stronger than death. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist and playwright who died in 1910, found himself at the age of 50 and overwhelmed with the looming reality of death. Listen to what he says that he was thinking at the age of 50. He writes, and I quote, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? What a question that is. And any savior who would offer himself as a savior had better be someone who can answer yes to that question and be able to make that answer come true. This is why the resurrection of Christ is such good news for us. According to the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead demonstrates that Jesus has power over death and that he can answer yes to Tolstoy's question. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. After speaking of Jesus dying on a cross, Peter says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Think about Peter's statement for a moment. According to what Peter says, death has power, but death's power was no match for Jesus. And keep in mind that Jesus did not just barely die and then be resuscitated. Jesus allowed death to do its very worst to him. Think about it this way. Jesus said to his enemies, go ahead, punch me and slap me. Take a crown of thorns and beat it repeatedly into my brow. Strip me of my clothes and lash me with a whip again and again and tear the flesh from my body. Do violence to my body and to my face such that my face will become more marred than that of any man. Hang me on a cross and nail me through my hands and feet and leave me hanging there for six hours until I die. And then after I die, go ahead and thrust a spear into my side until blood and water come pouring out just to be sure that I'm really dead. In other words, don't just kill me, overkill me. 
then put my dead body in a tomb and put a great stone in front of that tomb and put on that stone the seal of the Roman government. In fact, put some Roman soldiers in front of that tomb to guard it and to make it secure. I will spot you all of that. And three days later, I will pry open the jaws of death and come forth physically alive with a resurrected body that will never die. And guys, that's exactly what Jesus did on this very Sunday of the year 2,000 years ago, which shows us that Jesus is way more powerful than death. Death is the great opponent that every person must get past in order to have eternal life. And Jesus comes to us and he says, I'll help you with that. I've already had a contest with death and I won easily. That's the savior for me. And he can be your savior too. Perhaps though, you need to know more than this. Maybe you have no trouble believing that Jesus is more powerful than death. Maybe what you worry about is whether Jesus' love for you is stronger than your sins. And I'm here to tell you that the resurrection of Christ shows us that Jesus and his love are stronger than your sins. And that's truth number four I want us to look at this morning. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that Jesus and his love are stronger than our sins. Let's face it. We've all gone our own way and we've sinned against a holy God. And the wages of our sin is death. We prefer not to think about our sins We try to minimize and make excuses for our sins. We even try to remove the language of sin from our vocabulary. Yet the Bible stubbornly refuses to let us get by with doing this. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible also points us to Jesus on the cross and tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that he, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Think about the sins that you have committed throughout your life and realize that Christ personally bore those sins in his body when he was on the cross. As for what our sins actually did to him when they were placed on him at the cross, listen to what the literal reading of the text of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 tells us. The text says he was pierced through from our transgressions. He was crushed from our iniquities. As your sins and my sins were placed upon Jesus at the cross, he was literally pierced through and crushed by our sins that were being borne by him in his body. This means that on one level, our sins killed him, making all of us violators of the sixth commandment, which says, you shall not kill. At the foot of the cross, we all discover the essence of all sin. The DNA, as it were, of all sin in its very essence is deicide or the murder of God. And think about how true that really is. Every time you and I sin, we are in that moment removing God from our thoughts and pretending that he doesn't exist. That's the murder of God in our heart, in every moment of sin. And the cross puts that on full display in a way that we can't argue with. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us conclusively that if God were to come into our world, we would kill him. 
that's what we did. And that's what mankind has been doing ever since. In the 19th century, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche spoke about how the Enlightenment killed God from society. And his haunting words of self-accusation could easily apply to all of us as we behold the lifeless body of Jesus at the cross. Nietzsche writes these words, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? The preacher, Charles Spurgeon, himself beholds Christ dying on the cross and he finds himself grieving more than simply the death of Christ. He says, and I quote, his being led forth to die is sorrow enough for one eternity, but my having been his murderer is infinitely more grief than one poor fountain of tears can express. At the foot of the cross, we see ourselves for what we really are. We are murderers, murderers of God. And it was our sins that inflicted the deadly blows upon Jesus at the cross as he was pierced through and crushed by our iniquities. But you know what? Yes, our sins crushed and killed Jesus. Yes, he was buried in the tomb. Yet he rises from the dead, teaching us that he is more powerful, not just more powerful than death, but more powerful than our sins. And that his love is stronger than our sins. Jesus took the very worst that our sins could give him, and he came back to life, and he offers us salvation through the very death that we inflicted on him. To me, the greatest miracle of Easter is not that Jesus came back to life after he died. I have no trouble believing that. The greatest miracle of Easter is that Jesus came back from the dead with love in his heart for the people who killed him, with love in his heart for you and for me. The greatest epiphany of Easter is that Jesus' love is stronger than our sin. Think about what happens in Acts chapter 2. Peter the apostle is talking to some of the very people who had crucified Christ. He accuses them of having nailed Jesus to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But he tells them in verse 36 that God raised him from the dead and made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, Peter says, whom you crucified. And when the people in Peter's audience hear this, they're pierced in their heart with conviction over what they had done. And they ask Peter the question, what shall we do? Is there any remedy for what we have done? What shall we do? And wonderfully, Peter doesn't say to them, well, that's a good question, but it's too late. Jesus loved you once before you killed him, but now his love for you is dead. Now there's nothing for you to do except to await the vengeance that he is going to unleash upon you for time and all eternity. No, Peter doesn't say that. Instead, listen to what he says 
and feel the mercy and the love in these words. He says to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or calling upon the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's staggering to me that the resurrected Jesus right now stands ready to save and give forgiveness of sins to the people who killed him. Think about how precious this truth would have been for Jesus' disciples also. They had all abandoned Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. Peter himself had cursed and denied that he even knew Jesus, and Jesus heard him utter his oath and saying that he did not even know who Jesus was. Imagine how low Peter and the disciples must have been on the Friday night of Christ's crucifixion and all day Saturday and in the wee hours of Sunday morning. All of them had to have been ravaged with guilt and every one of them just knew that they would go to their graves broken and guilty men who had abandoned Jesus in his moment of need. But Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and he makes appearances to these guilt-ridden disciples and he loves them. He even made a breakfast for them on one occasion after his resurrection. He showed them by many convincing proofs that he was not only alive, but that he loved them and had forgiven them and that he now wanted to use them as his ambassadors to tell the world of his love. And it was the resurrection of Christ who loved them with a love that their sins could not extinguish that transformed these disciples into the fearless champions that they became. They had been exposed at their worst and discovered that Jesus' love was stronger than their sin. They discovered that they were still loved by the resurrected Jesus. And after that, they feared nothing at all. Can we cherish this truth about Jesus on this Easter Sunday Jesus knows very personally what it means to have your sins piercing him and crushing him. And because of that, Jesus had every right to be raised from the dead and to come to you and say, yes, I am alive again, but my love for you is dead. I'm done with you. I will live forevermore, but I want nothing more to do with you. I live forever now to haunt you and judge you to the uttermost for what you did to me. Instead of saying such things to you and to me, Jesus comes to you today and to me today and says, I have felt your sins upon my own person. I suffered death at the hand of your sins, but I have risen again, and I now stand ready to save you to the uttermost if you would be willing to come to God through me. I'm so happy to declare to you this morning that there is something, there is someone who is more powerful than your sins, and that is Jesus and his love. And you can know that is true because of his resurrection. And that leads us to the final point that I want to make this morning. The final thing that Christ's resurrection says about him. Number five, Jesus has absolute authority to be your savior. Jesus has absolute authority to be your savior. We may not think about this a lot, but the truth is that Authority and saviorhood are linked together. You really can't have one without the other. If someone wants to be our savior and that person is not the highest authority in the universe, then their saving of us will always be at risk of being overturned or undone by someone more powerful than they are. There will always be the danger that 
Though they may wish to save us, they may not have the full authority that they need to carry out their saving intentions toward us. For example, if someone is in prison right now, I may love them and wish that they were free, but I can't free them because I don't have the authority to do that. But if I become the president of the United States, then I would have the power to pardon that person and to free them from prison. To deliver them or to save them, as it were, I must have authority. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus has all the authority he needs to be our Savior. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible speaks of Jesus and tells us in verse 20 that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that's good news for us. The one who loved us enough to die for us, the one who wants to save us more than anything, this one has become the absolute sovereign Lord of the universe And that's really good news for us because it means that Jesus now has absolute authority to save us. And we never have to worry about his authority being overruled and trumped by anyone else's authority. It means that no one can ever hinder Jesus from doing his full heart's desire in saving those whom he chooses to save. In Acts chapter 5, the Bible says, beginning in verse 30, God raised up Jesus, and he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance and the forgiveness of sins. At the right hand of God, Jesus now has full authority to do whatever he pleases. And what is he doing with that authority according to this passage? He's giving out the gift of repentance to sinners like you and me. And he's giving the forgiveness of sins. He takes the full weight of all of his authority and he brings it to bear in giving repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him and confess him as their Lord and their Savior. So if you, even right now, are feeling conviction over your sin and you feel God's Spirit working in your heart right now, I would plead with you, don't resist that. That's Jesus working in you. That's Jesus who is right now at the right hand of God who just may be working in you and giving you the gift of repentance right now. Consider it a blessing that he is working in your heart and respond to him and believe in him today. Call upon him as your Lord and Savior and know that he has full authority to be your Savior. And you can know that's true because the resurrection of Christ from the tomb shows you that it's true. I was recently watching a debate between the anti-theist Christopher Hitchens and a Christian apologist that took place a number of years ago. And the topic of the resurrection of Christ from the tomb came up. And to my surprise, Christopher Hitchens conceded the possibility that Christ might actually have been raised from the dead. But his attitude was, so what? Listen to what Christopher Hitchens said in this debate and listen to his line of reasoning as to why he views the resurrection of Christ as no big deal. He says, and I quote, if I was to see Jesus executed one day and see him walking the streets the next day, that would not show me that his father is God or that his teachings were true, especially given the commonplace nature of resurrections at that time and place. After all, Lazarus was raised 
and never said a word about it. The daughter of Jairus was raised, and she didn't say a thing about what she had been through. And the Gospels tell us that at the time of the crucifixion, all the graves in Jerusalem opened and their occupants walked around the streets of Jerusalem. So it seems that resurrection was something of a banality at the time. Not all those people were divinely conceived. So I'll give you all the miracles and you will still be where you are now, holding an empty sack. Well, think about what Christopher Hitchens says there and think about the other resurrections that he mentions. Who raised Lazarus from the dead? Jesus did. And you can read about that in John chapter 11. Who raised Jairus's daughter from the dead? Jesus did. And you can read about that in Mark chapter 5. And whose crucifixion served as the catalyst for the tombs of the saints in Jerusalem to be opened and the dead to come forth? It was Jesus' crucifixion. And you can read about that in Matthew 27. So Jesus was the cause of these resurrections that Christopher Hitchens is mentioning. And each of these resurrections are in and of themselves reasons to believe in Jesus because he caused them. And then to top it all off, Jesus himself was raised on the third day after his crucifixion, just as he said that he would. So thank you, Christopher Hitchens, for bringing up these other resurrections because they all glorify Jesus just as his own resurrection from the dead does as well. And your argument reminds us that only Jesus can do resurrections so often and with such ease that they seem commonplace to observers like Christopher Hitchens. As much as people like Hitchens might try to deny it, Jesus' resurrection from the dead leaves us with a very full sack that is too heavy for any of us to carry. It's a game changer, and it sends a message that is impossible to ignore, a message that ends up being deeply personal to all of us. The resurrection of Christ from the tomb shows us that Christ is the ultimate truth-teller, that he has the right to intrude upon our lives and direct our religion, that he is stronger than death, and that he and his love are stronger than our sins, and that he has total authority to be our Savior and to save us to the uttermost. What must you do to be saved by him? Well, the Bible's counsel to you is very clear. In Romans chapter 10 in verse 9 and 10, the Bible says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you believe that Jesus is the Lord that he says he is, and if you look at his resurrection from the dead and see that as proof of his lordship, and if you open your heart to Jesus today and you believe in him, you will be saved. God will forgive you of your sins through the blood of Christ that was shed at the cross. God will make you his child and bring you into his family and bring you into relationship with himself and he will ultimately save you to the uttermost with a salvation that will last through all of eternity. A salvation that no authority in heaven or on earth could ever undo. If you have never believed in Jesus and confessed him as your saving Lord, I can't think of a better day for you to do that than on this Resurrection Sunday Jesus is the one that your soul has been thirsty for 
all of your life. Come home to him. Let him wrap his loving arms around you and find yourself at peace in his embrace. Call upon him and experience the salvation that only he has the authority and the power to give you and find out what an amazing savior Jesus really is. Who is Jesus? That is the most important question that any of us could ever ask. And his resurrection from the dead tells you that he's a more amazing savior than you can even begin to imagine. And he stands ready to save you today. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news of salvation through Jesus that you give to us in your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to die on the cross for our sins to provide us atonement. And we praise your holy name for the power that you displayed in coming forth from the grave with a resurrected body that lives forever now in heaven as you reign from the right hand of God. There is no doubt about your authority to save nor your desire to save. We cherish the truth that you, Jesus, are more powerful than death. And we also cherish the truth that you and your love are stronger even than our sins. And that you stand ready to save to the uttermost those who come to God through you. I pray for anyone who is under the sound of my voice, Lord, who has yet to call upon your name for salvation, that you would touch their hearts and draw them to yourself, that they would call upon your name, that they would see the beauty of your person to such a degree that they would consider it an intolerable suffering to live one more minute apart from you and that they would run to you, Jesus, and experience the salvation that you alone can give them. Help us who know you to know you more, to understand the depths of the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God that is found in Jesus. None of us who call ourselves Christian knows you as fully as we can know you. There's so much more to learn. So take us deeper in our knowledge of you, Jesus, and then help us to mirror the image of Christ to others and to open our mouths and to share Christ with others as well and to proclaim this good news to people who need to hear it. We are living, Lord, in interesting times, times of crisis, times of confusion, times of loneliness, times of fear. We pray, Lord, for our government leaders that you would give to them wisdom as they lead us through this crisis Give us wisdom as we seek to live responsibly under the leadership of those that you have placed over us in government. But Lord, help us not to give way to fear and help us to know that you are our reigning Lord and it is your bidding that we desire to do and it is you that we wish to proclaim even in a time and especially in a time such as this. So may the light of the glory of Christ go forth, not only from Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church, but from every other local church in the Riverside area and throughout California and throughout our nation and throughout the world, that great advances for the kingdom of God would happen in this season, Lord, as you, Lord Jesus, lay claim to souls and bring them to yourself and save them to the uttermost in anticipation of the day when people of every tribe and tongue and nation will one day be gathered around your throne 
and saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and worthy is this one who was raised and who lives forever to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. We bow before you, Lord Jesus, and worship you and praise your name and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.